I'm going to try and deal with three chapters um, here in Jeremiah. So uh, the one that we've just read is the first of the three that we'll be looking at this evening. So we're going to be dealing with Jeremiah chapters 21 uh, to 23. We haven't been with Jeremiah since the 7th of November. Um, you probably wouldn't have had any idea when we were last there. I uh, have preaching records that, that tell me that. So I thought I'd take a quick moment to... Gary, I think we'll go with the, the lectern here. Great. Um, for centuries, uh, God's people, uh, Israel, had been split into two nations uh, at the time of Jeremiah. So there's a, a northern kingdom, uh, northern kingdom of Israel, and a southern kingdom of Judah in the south. And with a few bright exceptions, it's a really quite dark period in the lives of God's people. Uh, they seem like they're incapable of keeping covenant with God, of being the people uh, whom he's called them to be. And as a result of their covenant failure, both of these nations, both Israel in the north and Judah in the south, eventually are dragged off into exile. So in 722 BC, it's the Assyrian army that arrives, defeats the northern kingdom, and the city of Samaria, which is their capital, falls, and many are dragged into exile. And the period we're dealing with here is about 130 years later. Uh, We're just approaching the time when the southern kingdom of Judah is going to fall. And it's in this time that Jeremiah is acting as God's prophet. He's bringing God's word to God's people. So by the time we get to chapter 21, we're pretty near the end of the road for Judah. The enemy, King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army, are standing at the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, uh, sends a couple of messengers to the prophet Jeremiah, and he asks him to inquire of God uh, on uh, their behalf. They want God to intervene, and you see it there in verse 2. The question is this, perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past, so that he... Nebuchadnezzar will withdraw from us. It's a fair enough request because this is what God does. God protects his people. He looks after his people, especially in the face of pagan uh, superpowers. This is how we've come to know the God of Israel to be. So if you cast your mind back over the story of God's people, he brings them out under, from under the, the pagan power in Egypt, uh, and he does that under Moses. Joshua gives them victory over the Canaanites, the, the many different nations, uh, smaller nations, who, who were in what was called the Promised Land. David delivers them, if you remember, particularly from the nation of the Philistines. So God does this. He delivers his people from uh, pagan oppressors. Surely God would do something now. Nebuchadnezzar's at the gate. The kings come to, to ask the prophet, you know, inquire of the Lord for us. Uh, come and rescue us from Nebuchadnezzar and from Babylon. 
God's reply here, I think, would have sent shivers down the spine of the, the folks who first heard it announced. It would have had the hair standing up on the back of their neck. Because he not only says, no, I'm not going to deliver you. He goes further than that. He says, I myself will fight against you. Verse 5. You can forget about me rescuing you from Nebuchadnezzar. I've brought him to Jerusalem. I'm going to bring him right into the city. And when he comes in, I'm going to join ranks with him and take up arms against you. Look at verse 13. I am against you, Jerusalem. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? That passage, I think, echoes of something that we read way back in chapter 6. The Lord, through his prophet, had told the people, don't trust in deceptive words that say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people had been, had been saying to themselves, well, this is, this is Jerusalem. God's temple's here. Of course it's not going to fall to any uh, pagan army. The truth is, if God had been in his temple, if God had been for his people in Jerusalem, then the people there would have been as safe as a baby in its mother's arms. No harm would have come to them. But the Lord's not for Judah just now. He's not for Jerusalem at this point. He is against her. And he's going to wage war on his own people. I wonder how this stacks up with our image of God. We've just come out of Christmas, the season when more than any other time of the year we try to domesticate God. Um, It's all about softly lit nativities with plenty of animals, children, baby in the hay. And the truth is that a lot of people don't ever really graduate from that view of, of Jesus. If the baby in the manger grows up at all in their minds, he, he grows up into somebody gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. The one who wouldn't say boo to a goose, who only ever wants to give us all that we want. God, for a lot of people, is, is not unlike Santa. Um, he's a kindly old figure. Someone who loves to welcome people onto his knee and ask them what they want so that he can give it to them. If not for Christmas, then sometime in their comfortable, contented life. Folks, that picture of God is, is a million miles away from the God revealed to us in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. God isn't someone we can count on to give us life on our own terms. He's not someone we can count on to see things our way, to give us what we want and to be on our side. He's never on our side. Whoever we are and whatever our cause may be. There's no such thing, you see, as for God and Judah or 
for God in Ulster. Because life's not really about Judah and Ulster, finally. It's about him. He is the creator God. He's the one who sustains us every moment of every day. He's the one who will one day judge all the earth. He never joins our side, ever. But he does invite us to come and to join his. In the rest of our passage this evening, as we look at chapters 22 and 23, our focus is going to fall on a very specific part of Jeremiah's message. I need to explain to you, when you're preaching Jeremiah, because it's, it's quite long and because it repeats its themes, you have to be careful as you preach that you don't end up preaching the same sermon every time. So this evening we're going on to a particular theme that we haven't looked at in much depth before. These two chapters deal in a very concentrated way with, with a theme that Jeremiah has already raised. It's about the failure of leadership and God's judgment on Judah's unfaithful leaders. The, the paragraph headings there in the NIV give us a bit of a clue as to the kind of leadership uh, which Jeremiah has in mind. If you look at page 780, you'll notice the material in chapter 22. It all falls under the heading judgment against evil kings. And if you flick over to the the next page, 782, the heading up near the top of the right-hand column, lying prophets, evil kings and lying prophets. We're going to think for the rest of our time this evening about the failure of political and religious leaders in Judah and God's judgment on them. By the way, I should say, while those categories and that differentiation makes a whole lot of sense to us, they would have been much closer together in the mind of the the Jewish people to whom Jeremiah is addressing his message. Uh, We can easily split up the political sphere and the religious sphere. The truth is, in Judah, both the king and the prophet are are people who are are accountable to God uh, and ought to be Uh, leading his people under his rule. Okay, we didn't get to read chapter 22, so let me quickly read some parts of it with you uh, and point out some of the dynamics of the passage. We're going to see here the failure of political leadership in Judah. First of all, notice in verses 1 to 5, God's expectation. So what, what did God expect from political leaders? This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is right and just. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you're careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, 
I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. God expects leaders to do what is right and just. You'll see that a lot of that focuses around supporting the vulnerable in the society. And although this was written many uh, hundreds of years ago, more than two millennia ago, the categories are, are recognizable as still being valid. There's still something about protecting victims of crime, foreigners, ethnic minorities in your midst, orphans and and maybe children brought up in single-parent families are still the vulnerable in our communities. Kings who rule under God rule in this kind of a way. This is God's expectation of political leaders. A good deal of the rest of the chapter shows that God has already passed judgment on Jehoiachim, which is the other name for Zedekiah. It's the same guy that we were reading about in chapter 21, the current king of Judah. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you're like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I'll surely make you a wasteland, like towns not inhabited. I'll send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they'll cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. It's very much in keeping with what we've noticed in chapter 21. God is against his people. We saw there he's against Judah, he's against Jerusalem. But here we see it a little bit more specifically that he's against their king. He's against the leadership in the land. And the rest of the chapter elaborates on the theme. Look at quickly at verses 24 to 27. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I'll deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you will both die. You'll never come back to the land you long to return to. It's chilling stuff. And it makes you wonder why the gracious, loving God that we uh, worship and love and adore, the one we've come to know in Jesus Christ, would deal so harshly with a king of his own people. In verses 8 to 9, we get an insight, I think, into God's reasoning. We see why God judges the rulers of his people. Jeremiah imagines a time when people from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. The 
the leaders of Israel had failed to keep covenant. They had failed to lead God's people in the ways that God had called them to lead them. And now God was holding them accountable. And now God's judgment was falling. I tried to think about the state of political leadership in our land at this time. And I wasn't sure where to go with it. Because quite honestly, I felt for the guys who are trying to give leadership in the mess that we're in the middle of right now. It's easy, I think, to pick up on decisions that have been made that are different than the decisions we might have made. Harder, I think, to know how to give leadership to a community as fragmented and as volatile as ours. In the end, I came to the conclusion that that doing what the Bible invites us to do and praying for our uh, appointed leaders would be a good place to start. In a few moments when I sit down, we're going to take an opportunity to pray. Um, We're going to give you some some silence to, to pray for those charged with leading us here in Ulster in the times in which we live. Chapter 23 deals with another group of leaders. In chapter 23, Jeremiah pronounces God's judgment on the religious leaders of God's people. This is interesting because sometimes it's the religious leaders who give the political leaders a hard time. Jeremiah It is scathing of Judah's religious leaders. Look at verses 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my sheep. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and haven't bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done. If it's not entirely clear here what's meant by being a a shepherd, then the the major section of the chapter, beginning at verse 9, elaborates on all of this. Let's look at a quick sampling of these verses, beginning at chapter 10, verse B. Jeremiah says, The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. What's the evil course that the the prophets are taking? What's the godlessness and the wickedness that they're bringing into God's house? Well, I can see that it's twofold in this passage. First of all, they're filling people with false hopes. Look at verse 16. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. You'll have peace, they say. No harm will come to you. And as I said a little bit earlier, it's not the first time that this theme has been raised here by by the prophet. In chapter 6, verse 13, he challenges the blind optimism of the Judean prophets. He says, prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. I was at a, a meeting not too recent, or not too long ago, quite recently, um, where a number of church leaders from not far from here had gathered together, and I was not really a participant in the conversation. I, I was quite uh, struck by it. I heard the the church leaders lamenting the decline of many of the local congregations. And, and they were talking about a, a, a thing in particular, which I think had frustrated them. They were haranguing people who come out at Christmas time, but then don't come back to church in January. Uh, this was very much the, the theme. And at one point, one of the ministers said that we shouldn't get too upset about the decline of the church. He was assuring us that things weren't as bad as they seemed, that we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. And it sounded to me a lot like someone saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And it was the best I could do to to bite my tongue and to not say a word. I think it's a brave man who speaks for the people of God these days and says, peace, we're doing okay. We have nothing to fear. There's no reason why God would judge us. We're in his will. We're walking in his ways. We're keeping covenant. I think it would be a brave person would take that line. Or someone who has little of the fear of the Lord in them. Little sense of God's glory and his beauty. And how far we are from, from showing it to the world. The godlessness and the wickedness of the prophets isn't limited to that false hope that they're giving the people. There's another aspect to it. They're ignoring the word of God and they're preaching their own message. Look at verse 18. Jeremiah is talking about the prophets and he says, Which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? 
Verse 21. The Lord says, I didn't send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I didn't speak to them, yet they have prophesied. These prophets haven't listened to God, and they're not carrying his message. They're carrying their own. Look at verse 25. I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their ancestors forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Do you recognize the modern church in those verses? I think I do. Lots of people talking about their dreams and their visions. People who haven't listened to the word of God. Who don't bring God's word to God's people. I was watching a couple of clips on YouTube this week and I came across a type of video that I don't often see. Um, But it was, I think it's probably quite common in North America, one church leader telling you why another church leader was, you know, wrong and and of the devil. And and to be honest, I normally take that sort of thing with a pinch of salt. But I, I watched this video... Uh, for a few minutes, and they showed what I think is one of the largest churches in the the United States now. Uh, The pastor is a guy called Joel Austin. I think I remember his books being on sale in the Christian bookshops in, in Belfast a few years ago. My sense is that Jeremiah is describing his preaching ministry really quite well in verses 25 to 29. If you listen to Joel Austin, he will tell you all the ways in which God wants you to be a winner. All the ways in which God wants you to succeed. All the ways in which God wants to make you successful and make your life better. And his church is the biggest or one of the biggest in the whole of North America. But there are other ways of of doing this, of sitting lightly with God's word. Look at those powerful images Jeremiah gives us there in verses 28 and 29. He says, let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. 
The dreamer, he says, is like straw. There's no substance to it. My word, the Lord says, is the good stuff. It's the grain. It's the stuff that has real integrity. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? An older Christian gave me that verse as a young man trying to learn to to preach God's word. He told me about God's word being like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. I didn't really know it was from the Bible. I just thought it sounded good. Here it is. God's word is the, the powerful and the effective fire, the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. We've thought about the failure of political leadership in Judah. We've thought about the the failure of the, the religious leadership. It seems to me that everything that Jeremiah writes about then could well be true of our society and our church that we find ourselves in today. And I don't want to I don't want to be like the, the prophets in Judah who spoke peace, peace where there is no peace. I want to recognize that if, if these things are going on in our culture and in our church, it's as likely to me that God would would act in judgment now uh, as he did then. I want to leave you this evening as we've talked here about the failure of leadership with a picture of a beautiful leader. Look at verses 3 to 6 of chapter 23. Right in the middle of this chapter where Jeremiah is talking about the failure of Judah's religious leaders, he has this word from the Lord where the word Lord says, verse 3, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their pasture where they'll be fruitful and increase in number. I'll place shepherds over them who'll tend them, and they'll no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Who's he talking about? Folks, when Jesus Christ came, he entered into the mess of of God's people, Israel, and he embodied everything that God had ever intended them to be. Judah's and Israel's leaders were, were corrupt almost to a man. Even the best of them were flawed in very significant ways. But Jesus, 
He comes and he is the true king. Think of what we thought about there, the the characteristics, the qualities that God looks for in a king. The one who is the champion of the downtrodden, who who brings justice for widows and orphans, who, who welcomes foreigners. Folks, it just describes the life and the ministry of Jesus. He's the true king. Jesus is the true prophet. He's the one who says in John's gospel, the gospel we're studying on Sunday mornings, I don't speak except the words that my father gives me. He's, in, he's entirely in contrast to these prophets that we've read about here in chapter 23. Jesus Christ is the true prophet. Folks, as we finish our reflection here this evening, I want to to suggest that we do two things. When we consider leadership, when we see here the the failure of leaders, uh, the leaders of God's people, I, I point you to Jesus Christ and I say, be sure that you're being led by him. What I mean by that is each one of us lives our lives following someone, following somebody's teachings or ideas or their their ways. Could I encourage you to, to just be sure that it's Jesus Christ whom you're following? If you're following any human leadership, evaluate it by by the way in which it draws you further with Jesus. If it does that, then then it's fine to follow that leadership. If it doesn't, then, then turn from it and do it soon. Be led by Jesus. And, and just a, a final point for, for any of us, and, and many of us in a gathering like this will have some form of leadership. Let's learn to lead in the way of Jesus. Let's be led by him and whatever leadership we exercise over other people, let it be centered on him. Let it show his his love and his qualities, his grace and his truth uh, to the, the world in which we live. Let's be led by him and let's lead like him. Amen.